Okay, well, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2? 1 Samuel 2. You know, as we've already said, the uh, background of the book of 1 Samuel is that it opens up during the period of the Judges. And the period of the Judges was, without a doubt, one of the blackest periods in, in Israel's history. It was a time when the leaders of Israel, both political, the judges, and spiritual, the priests and prophets, were extremely corrupt. And uh, these leaders, in order to enrich themselves and to really satisfy every material and sexual desire they had, well, they turned their backs on God and His laws. And as inevitably happens, when the leaders turn their backs on God, the people usually follow their lead. That's what happened in the period of the Judges. Somebody has said that people will seldom, if ever, rise above the level of their leadership. That's why God holds leaders to such a high standard. If the leaders are corrupt and forsake God's laws, so will the people. And that's exactly what happened during the period of the judges. Most people forsook God's laws, and the nation became relativistic. In other words, no ultimate right or wrong. They became a relativistic, opinion-driven society, where everyone started doing whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Uh, we see that quite a bit in our country. Well, back then the result was that violence, corruption, and murder filled the land and became a normal part of their daily lives, even as we're seeing in our own country. Now, guys, this pattern has been repeated countless times throughout the history of the world. When a people turn their backs on God and his laws, the result is tyranny, tyranny. Because godless people will elect or get behind godless leaders. And when godless leaders get into power, ultimately, the ones that suffer tend to be the very people that trusted them and put them into power. Whether we're talking about, you know, the French Revolution or the rise of communism around the world, the result is always the same. Godless leaders espouse godless philosophies and agendas that they then impose on the people in the name of the greater good, which always produces atrocities. I was reading recently some of the history surrounding the rise of Joseph Stalin to power. Stalin grew up poor. His father was a shoemaker, his mother a laundress. And as a teenager, he earned a scholarship to the seminary where he lived and started to attend the seminary. But while he was there, he read Karl Marx's book, The Communist Manifesto. And that started him down the path of the revolutionary movement against the Russian monarchy. Well, eventually he was expelled from the uh, seminary for his radical views. And uh, he became an underground political agitator, taking part in labor demonstrations and uh, strikes. But in that regard, he was uh, seen as a man of the people, grew up poor, and was now fighting for the people against those who were oppressing them. So the people loved him. Well, he eventually rose to the ranks of the Communist Party, and after Lenin died, he became the leader of the Soviet Union. One historian picks up the story from here. He says, and I quote, Starting in the late 1920s, Joseph Stalin launched a series of five-year plans intended to transform the Soviet Union from a peasant society into an industrial superpower. His development plan was centered on government control of the economy and included the forced collectivization of Soviet agriculture in which the government took control of farms. Millions of farmers refused to cooperate with Stalin's orders and were shot or exiled as punishment. The forced collectivization also led to a widespread famine across the Soviet Union that killed millions. Yes, it was an artificial famine. 
Uh, Stalin basically took crops from areas and exported them other places and let the people starve. If they, if they tried to leave, his soldiers were around the area, not permitting people to leave. He starved millions of people. It says Stalin ruled by terror and with a totalitarian grip in order to eliminate anyone who might oppose him, oppose the greater good. He expanded the powers of the Secret Service, encouraged citizens to spy on one another, and had millions of people killed or sent to the gulag system of forced labor camps. During the second half of the 1930s, Stalin instituted the Great Purge, a series of campaigns designed to rid the Communist Party, the military, and other parts of Soviet society from those he considered a threat, end quote. Well, in February of 1945, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was an educator, activist, author, uh, he was arrested uh, in the Soviet Union for writing politically inconvenient truths about Joseph Stalin. Uh, he was in prison for eight years, finally released, and eventually was charged with treason and exiled from the Soviet Union after writing the Gulag Archipelago uh, in 1973. Eventually, Solzhenitsyn traveled to the United States and wound up settling in a uh, secluded area of Vermont where he continued to write. Now, why am I bringing all this out? I'm bringing it out to show you one example of how a nation can suffer when it turns its back on God. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote about what his country went through under Stalin and the reasons for it. And this is the quote I really want to get, wanted to get to. He said, and I quote, over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of old people offering the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. They said, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million people, 60 million were killed, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God, that's why all this has happened, end quote. And so with that as a background, as we turn to 1 Samuel, as we've already pointed out, the main issue that the book deals with is the issue of leadership. Up until this point, the story has focused, we're in chapter 2, it has focused on Elkanah and his family. Now, they were a godly family, and eventually his wife, Hannah, bore a son that they named Samuel, and Hannah devoted Samuel to the Lord. She, after he was weaned, she gave him, him and her and Eli, excuse me, her and Elkanah, gave Samuel to Eli, the high priest, to raise right there in the tabernacle in service to the Lord, right from the time he was a little guy. Now, the story progresses, and as we pick it up in chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit now begins to contrast the ungodly leadership of Eli and his sons, who were the priesthood. So the ungodly leadership of those in spiritual power at the time with the godly leadership that God was raising up through this young child named Samuel. Uh, for example, we read how that it says that uh, Eli's sons Hophni and Phinehas, verse 17, abhorred the offering of the Lord. But verse 18 says, Samuel ministered before the Lord. The two brothers committed evil deeds at the tabernacle and invited God's judgment. But Samuel served at the tabernacle and grew in God's favor, verse 26. It had gotten so bad that verse 17 tells us that Eli's sons had become so corrupt 
that people hated to come to the house of God to offer him sacrifices. They were so corrupt that people abhorred giving sacrifices to God. Now, I'd like to divide this section into two main parts. The corruption of Eli's sons in ministry and then the preparation of Samuel for ministry. We started this last week looking at the corruption of Eli's sons in ministry. We started by looking at the practice of Eli's sons. You can read this in verses 12 to 17 if you'd like. But the idea was that when people would bring their animals to be sacrificed to God, this was a form of worship, by the way, and as a way to deal with sin as well. But as they would bring the animals to the priest, God had prescribed in the law uh, the procedure, and that was the animal was to be offered to him. God got the animal first, you might say. And then with most of the offerings, the priest got to take parts of the animal, the parts that God had prescribed, uh, they got to take parts of the animal home to eat with their families. That's how they lived and all. But these men decided they were going to take whatever they wanted. They were going to take it before it was offered to the Lord. They were going to force the people to give them raw meat because they didn't want boiled meat. And so they took anything they wanted, including the fat, which God had forbidden, that belonged to God exclusively. So they were taking what belonged to God for themselves. They were terrorizing the people, uh, using strong-arm tactics to say, look, give us what we want, and if you won't give it to us, we'll take it by force. And if all that wasn't bad enough, it says that in verse 22, they even seduced the women who were serving there at the tabernacle, uh, seduced them, took them into the priest's quarters right there in the house of God and were sleeping with them. So that's the practice of Eli's sons. Let's look this morning at the problem of Eli's sons, verses 22 to 25. And let me just say it up front. The biggest problem with Eli's sons was Eli himself. Verse 22, now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make God's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. It seems obvious that Eli wasn't much of a godly father or spiritual leader. Uh, this is what is known as too little too late. Okay, The people of Israel were constantly, it seems, telling Eli about the evil his sons were doing. And by the time he finally gets around to chiding them a little, he gives them a weak reproof instead of a strong rebuke. Uh, by this time, though, their hearts were so hardened after years of, you know, of sinning against the Lord that their father's admonition fell pretty much on deaf ears. The time to change your children's behavior is not when they're adults. It's when they're little. There are many parents like Eli. They're not bad people. They're just terrible disciplinarians. Why is that? Well, I think a main reason that I've seen over the years in my years in ministry is that there's a lot of parents that just don't want their children to grow up not liking them. And so they kind of opt for a model of parenting where they try to be their children's friend instead of someone who is going to hold them accountable to do what's right. You know, I tell parents, uh, I've told parents over the years, look, your child doesn't need another friend. They need you to be a parent. A parent is an authority figure that is supposed to teach their children what's right and what's wrong based on what God has said, which means, of course, there are going to be instances where you're going to have to administer some loving 
discipline. But if you don't discipline your children, guess what? The Bible says you don't really love your kids. That's terrible. I love my kids I, just because I don't discipline them. Well, Proverbs 13, 24 says that he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Why is that? Because as the Bible says, rebellion is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them. Look, the parent that loves their children enough to lovingly discipline them when they need it is the best parent a child can have. And conversely, a parent that doesn't because they don't want their child to, you know, not like them is looking at parenthood as a way to boost their self-esteem. They are not helping their children to grow into responsible, honorable, law-abiding citizens. You know, I've read this before, but let me read it again since it goes along with what we're talking about. A few years ago, this is probably about 20 years ago now, the Houston Police Department came up with 12 rules for raising delinquent children. Number one, begin with infancy to give the child everything he wants. In this way, he will grow up to believe the world owes him a living. When he picks up bad words, laugh at him. This will make him think he's cute. Never give him any spiritual training. Wait until he's 21 and then let him decide for himself. Avoid the use of the word wrong. It may develop a guilt complex. This will condition him to believe later when he is arrested for stealing a car that society is against him and he is being persecuted. He's being prosecuted, but okay. Pick up everything he leaves lying around. Do everything for him so that he will be experienced in throwing all his responsibilities on others. Let him read any printed materials he can get his hands on. Today we would say to some parents, you give your kid a cell phone and they can go on the web and look at any garbage out there. And there's, there's so much garbage. That I just learned a statistic just the other day. Something like two-thirds of all the sites on the web are pornographic. And you give your kid a handheld computer and let him turn them loose on the Internet? Are you kidding me? Let him read any printed material he can get his hands on. Be careful that the silverware and drinking glasses are sterilized, but let his mind feast on garbage. Number seven, quarrel frequently in the presence of your children. In this way, they won't be so shocked when the home is broken up later. Number eight, give a child all the spending money he wants. Never let him earn his own. Satisfy his every craving for food, drink, and comfort. See that every sensual desire is gratified. Take his part against neighbors, teachers, and policemen. They are all prejudiced against your child. When he gets into real trouble, apologize for yourself by saying, I never could do anything with him. And finally, prepare for a life of grief. You are likely to have it. And guys, that seems to be how Eli raised these two boys, okay, who were adults at this time. But in so doing, he actually contributed to their demise. One author put it this way, suddenly I quote, Eli did about the worst thing a parent can do in trying to correct their children. Just talk. All he did was whine about what they did wrong, but he never took the necessary actions to correct the problem. Parents would be better off to yell less, lecture less, and to take sensible action more often, letting the children see the consequences for their disobedience, end quote. And finally, another said, and I quote, it's tragic when a father and a spiritual leader at that loses his influence over his own family and can only wait for God's hand of judgment to fall, end quote. When we read verse 25, it says, Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. Do you realize that some people read that and think that what is being said is that 
God was keeping these two men from repenting? Just for the pleasure of killing them. What kind of concept of God is that? Obviously, there's a lot more going on here that we're not told. Let me tell you what I believe. I believe what happened with Hophni and Phinehas was the same thing that happened to Pharaoh. When God sent Moses to Pharaoh to tell him to let my people go, right? And what did Pharaoh do? Hardened his heart, right? Hardened his heart. How many times did Moses go? And Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. I'm not going to let him go. I'm not going to let him go. Kept hardening his heart, hardening his heart. And then we read, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. The idea is that God only gives us so much time to repent and get our lives right with him. Only so much time. And if a person keeps hardening their hearts and hardening their hearts and hardening their hearts, there comes a point when their heart gets so hard, all that's left is judgment. I mean, no doubt for years, the Lord had tried to get a hold of the hearts of these two men, but to no avail. Again, it was one rejection of God's, you know, God was convicting, they were rejecting the conviction. God was trying to reach these, but they, two guys, but they kept hardening their hearts. And so after a while, God's conviction could no longer penetrate, and therefore God said, enough is enough. Judgment was the only thing that was left. It reminds me of the days of Jeremiah, who uh, preached to his generation a message of repentance. The people back in Jeremiah's day were extremely wicked, uh, very idolatrous and immoral. And uh, God kept telling Jeremiah, go to these people, tell them to repent, because judgment's coming. And so Jeremiah preached to them, and he pre- 46 years he preached to these people. He preached with tears. He's called the weeping prophet because his heart was so broken, he knew what was coming. And he kept preaching to the people about getting your life right with God, repenting. And they did all kinds of terrible things, beat them up, threw them in wells and in pits and all kinds of things. They never repented. At one point, God said in Jeremiah 7, verse 16, God said to Jeremiah, don't pray any longer for this people. There is no longer any hope for them. Judgment is the only thing now that's coming. Look, God warns us in his word not to let our hearts become hard. I'm talking to unbelievers now, okay? But God warns people in his word not to let their hearts become hardened to his conviction. The conviction of God is what pokes us in the heart, really. And it says to us, get your life right with me. I love you. I don't want to judge your life. I want to bless your life. I can't do that if you're living in rebellion against me. But listen to me now, because the more you say no, the more you harden your heart. In fact, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Because the writer is warning his audience about this very issue. And he even makes reference to the Old Testament where God spoke to Israel in the wilderness. Many were unbelievers, but it hardened their hearts, okay? He said in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. The author is saying that there is only so much time to receive God's offer to accept Christ and be saved by grace. Only so much time. The offer won't last forever. That's why he makes a point to stress the urgency of receiving Jesus while you still have the opportunity. The word today, right there, today signifies this present time of grace. What he is saying is, look, grace is likened to a day in a sense. It doesn't go on forever. There is a day of grace. What is that day? It might be years in some people's lives. 
But at one point, the opportunity is taken off the table. If a person keeps saying no to Jesus, at one point, the day of grace comes to an end. I think of Judas. At the Last Supper, Jesus sat Judas in a place of honor, right in front of him, which was only to be given by the host to an honored guest. And when he dipped the bread in the sop and gave it to Judas, in that culture, that was tantamount to proclaiming a toast. What am I saying? Jesus was giving Judas every opportunity, even at this late point. I mean, he had already planned out the betrayal of Christ. But Jesus, the night before the crucifixion, was still giving Judas a chance to repent. But what did Judas do? He got up at one point and left the room, right? Remember what it says in John's Gospel? And it was what? Night. Well, of course it was night. Passover didn't begin till sundown. That's not what the Holy Spirit was saying. The day of grace in Judas's life had come to an end. Now it was just darkness. And as Jude would go on to say in his epistle, those who reject Christ will only know the blackness of darkness forever. There is only a limited time we have to receive Jesus Christ. The author is trying to impress that upon his people today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't what? Harden your hearts. That Greek word in verse 8 is the word we get our English word sclerosis from. And it means a gradual hardening, as in the medical condition known as atherosclerosis, a gradual hardening of the arteries. When the word is used in the New Testament, it often refers to the gradual hardening of a person's heart to the gospel. Listen, the more they hear it, but continue to reject it. And guys, this will lead then at one point to what's called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is that? People say, well, you know, I was reading and Jesus said that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin. What is it? Because I don't want to commit it. I don't think blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is any one sin. I think it's a process. I think it goes right along with what we're saying. The Holy Spirit has come to the earth to woo people to Jesus. That's his ministry, right? He is with people who are unsaved, drawing them to Christ through a number of ways. Uh, friends, family, co-workers, witnessing to them, uh, radio programs, TV shows that are, are presenting the gospel and so on. But he is wooing them trying to win them over to Christ, bring them to, to Jesus, right? But if they keep saying no to Christ, no to Christ, every time the gospel is presented, their heart gets a little harder, a little harder, gradual process, until finally they pass what's known as the spiritual point of no return. Now they've hardened their hearts so much they can't believe. It's like the Pharisees. In Matthew 12, they accused Jesus of, of doing miracles by the power of Satan. And what did Jesus say? Be careful, you're, you're getting dangerously close to committing... Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Then we turn to John's Gospel, chapter 12, which happened later on down the road. And it said in John's Gospel that the Pharisees now, not just that they wouldn't believe, it says they couldn't believe. They had hardened their hearts so much, their fate was sealed. That's what's going on with Hophni and Phinehas. I mean, I know my God. He doesn't want to see anybody uh, go to hell, desires for all men and women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I know God was working on these two guys for years probably, trying to soften their hearts, trying to bring them over into a right relationship with God. But they kept hardening their hearts, hardening their hearts. And by the time Eli got around to chiding them a little bit, it was too late. That's why I said they listened to their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. In other words, the conviction was no longer there. God was no longer working. The, the, their fate had been sealed. Look, it's a very serious thing 
that the writer wants to communicate to his readers and to all of us through the Holy Spirit's leading. The urgency of receiving the gospel right now, today, today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Because you know what? Tomorrow is not promised to anybody. This may be the last time you get to hear the gospel. God forbid you should leave here today and go out and get in a car accident or something. You don't know what tomorrow or today is going to bring. And if you die without receiving Christ, there is no second chance. There is no court of appeals. There is no, I'm going to serve my sentence and get out someday. It's forever. Okay, that's why Paul writing here was trying to plead. In fact, it's the same sense of urgency that he communicated to those in Corinth. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul was the quintessential evangelist. All he wanted to do was see people saved. He knew what would await them forever if they rejected Christ and died. And so in all of his writings, this kind of comes through, but we see it clearly in 2 Corinthians, starting in chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul said, now, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of Jesus Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You see that? Paul said, we represent the Lord. We are his spokesmen. And he wants us to plead with people to get saved. He loves you that much. And there were people in Corinth that were unbelievers. At the point I forgot to bring out that there were people in Corinth that were going to church but had not really made a commitment to Christ. We see this all over the place in America. I can't tell you how many people right now as we speak are in churches hearing the, the word taught and might be nodding their heads but have no intention really to go out there and apply it into their lives. In their minds, just hearing the word, going to church, hearing the word of God, that's enough. God's good with that, and I can just live any way I want. Wrong. Jesus told a group of would-be disciples that were following him, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? Not everyone who calls me Lord is going to make it into heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. A changed life is the only real evidence that there's faith in a person's heart. And Paul was saying, look, God has sent us into the world, the Great Commission, to plead with people to be saved. We, we see it come through in Ezekiel 18. Remember what God said? He said, please turn from your sins. Please turn. Why will you die? I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked sending people to hell. This is not our God. Our God is a merciful God. He's a loving God. But he can only do so much. People think that, well, God's a loving God. Everyone gets into heaven because a God of love would never send anyone to hell. That's wishful thinking. That's not biblical truth. Okay, as I've said before, let me say it again. God's love is an awesome thing, but God's love can't save you. I mean, God's love has really never saved anybody. All it has done, and it's a big thing, is provided a way by which you might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That what? Whoever believes. It's not automatic. You have to believe, which means you have to believe to the point of commitment is the idea. It's not just intellectual assent. It's a heart conviction and surrender. So God is pleading with people to be saved. And Paul says right here, as if God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, be saved. Don't play games. In chapter 6, verse 1, we read, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. You guys heard the gospel. You, you supposedly accepted Christ, but... There's no fruit. 
You're living lives in Corinth was a very immoral town. And Paul says, well, I hear these reports about people going to prostitutes still and, and, and all these other things they're doing, cheating each other and, and living immoral lives. What makes you think you're saved? I mean, don't receive the, the, the gospel in vain. Make it real by really receiving Christ. Verse 2, he said, In an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Paul said, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So look, God is pleading with people to be saved. He is saying the offer won't be forever. And you don't know what tomorrow brings. You might not make it to tomorrow. So get on your knees right now and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, one more thing and we'll move on. Eli made a statement to his sons that we have to consider a little bit. Verse 23, back in 1 Samuel 2. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings. From all the people, know my sons, it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. Listen. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Well, fortunately, 1 John 2.1 answers Eli's question. John said, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Okay? I want you guys to live a holy life. But you know what? If you do blow it, if you do sin, we have an advocate, an intercessor with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In fact, the word advocate is a Greek word that really means attorney for the defense. Attorney for the defense. But he's our intercessor. We read in Hebrews 7, and you really should turn to Hebrews 7. This is one of the greatest passages in the New Testament on eternal security. Jesus is our intercessor. And the writer, Paul, is writing to a group of Jews. He's trying to reason with them, okay, about the superiority of Jesus as the high priest as opposed to any other earthly priest in Judaism. Hebrews 7, 23 also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. That's right. A priest only served as long as he lived. That's where they're always being replaced, okay? But Paul's point is that we have a greater priest, a high priest, who never dies. He abides forever. Verse 24, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save, listen, to the uttermost or all the way to glory is the idea those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Paul saying? He's talking about the priestly ministry of Jesus. How that after he offered himself, not a lamb or a goat or something, he offered himself as the lamb of God who took away sins. After he offered himself to pay for our sins, he then... Uh, rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven where he is making intercession for us constantly. Well, what does that mean? It means this. Every time we sin, now John says, look, I'm writing to you so that you don't sin, but if you do, know this. When you sin, the devil steps up and accuses us to the Father. The devil, the word devil means accuser. He's an accuser. And he accuses, he tempts us, and then when we give into it and we sin, he condemns us to the Father. But Jesus Christ steps up, and he is our advocate, our attorney for the defense. He's our intercessor. He says to the Father, Father, don't even listen to that. Their sins have already been paid for by me. I mean, it's all under my blood. He does this repeatedly. 
Now, that shouldn't cause us to say, well, I'm glad he does that. That means I don't have to really worry about sin too much, right? Uh, no. Uh, if you really love the Lord, you want to live a holy life. All it means, though, is that you can't sin your way out of God's grace. Not that we should try. But if we are saved by grace, then Jesus intercedes for us based on the work he did and the salvation that we have received by his grace. I mean, if every time I sin, Jesus Christ is saying, Father, doesn't count, doesn't count, it's already taken care of, then I'm not going to go to hell because my sins are constantly being forgiven. Therefore, I have a guaranteed place in heaven. And the Bible says this in numerous places, right? So Jesus is our intercessor. If a man sins against God, who will intercede for him, Eli asks? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's who. And we thank him for that. Now, as we bring it to a close, and I realized this morning we didn't really get really into uh, the corruption of Eli's sons too much in the ministry. We kind of took a little parenthesis. But the passage dealt with a few issues we really need to talk about, consider. But let me just finish our thought. How is Jesus able to be our defender when the devil accuses us to God when we blow it? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21, many of you have it memorized. He made him, the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now that verse, among many others, gives us the doctrinal foundation for our forgiveness and how Jesus can now be our intercessor. It is because he became our substitute and died in our place. He became our substitute and died in our place. In other words, God made Jesus to be sin for us. Jesus who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, we have to be careful because there are many who read first, 2 Corinthians 5.21 where it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. They think, well, Jesus became sin. He, was, he turned into sin. No, absolutely not. What it means is he became the sin offering for us. He became the sin. He was the substitute who died in our place. He himself was sinless and pure. Our sin was never placed in him. It was only placed upon him. The innocent died for the guilty. And once our sins were placed on him, they were paid for. And when you and I received Christ... That allowed the Father to take the finished work of Christ and apply it to our account. We have a ledger. The Bible says that contains all the sins we've ever committed. And once we receive Christ, God takes the blood of Christ, you might say, and writes across our ledger, ledger, paid in full. Paid in full? Our sins are completely taken away. It's a transaction. Uh, in fact, the Bible says that, that God imputed Christ's righteousness to our account. That's a bookkeeping term. It means to, to apply to our account, okay? It wasn't that we earned righteousness or salvation. It was that we, when we received Christ, His righteousness was imputed to our account by our faith. See, the idea is it's very important that we understand that we can't work to earn our salvation. Salvation is a free gift. Paul made a big case in Romans 4 to say, look, either it's something we earn or it's a gift that we're given. You can't earn it. So therefore, it's got to be a gift we receive by faith. And if it's a gift we receive by faith, then guess what? Because we didn't earn it, how can we lose it? We didn't earn it because of our good deeds. How can we lose it because of our sins, is the idea. I mean, this transaction is an awesome thing. It allows God, and Paul said, we, 
the righteousness that gets us into heaven is not a righteousness that we earn. Again, it's a righteousness that is given to us. Okay, it's the righteousness of Christ. And that only comes to us through our faith. One author put it this way. He said, What a blessed truth it is that the one who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we who knew no righteousness might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. All right, well, God willing, next week we will continue looking. Now, and we'll get into then chapter 3. As we look at the, see, we've looked at the, the practices of Eli's sons. The problem with Eli's sons was pretty much Eli. And then the uh, prophecy against Eli's sons. And that will bring us into chapter 3 as we see now the Holy Spirit contrasting the corrupt ministry of Eli's sons with now the godly ministry that he was raising up through Samuel. There's a lot of lessons that we can learn as we move into you know, a little farther in this, this section. A lot of things that God wants to teach us that we need to learn. So God willing, we'll meet next week and may God continue to bless our time in his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that you have placed here for our learning and understanding. We thank you, Lord, that we as sinners were not worthy of the least of your blessings and mercies. We certainly didn't deserve heaven. But because you're a loving, merciful God, you provided a way by which we as sinners, worthy of hell, could have forgiveness of sins and inherit heaven forever. We thank you for our Savior, who became a willing sacrifice who came down and took our sins upon himself and died in our place, and in the process gave to us his righteousness, that we now might be the children of God with a place in heaven guaranteed for eternity. Lord, we thank you. You're awesome. You are incredible. We just thank you for your amazing grace, your amazing love. Father, we thank you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.